This podcast is supported by our friends at Patagonia, the company known for its mission-driven approach and environmental activism. Right now, the clothing industry is contributing up to 10% of the pollution driving the climate crisis, but it doesn't have to be this way. Patagonia encourages us to buy less, and if you do decide to buy something new, to make sure you ask more from the things you buy. Demand recycled, demand fair trade, demand organic. You have the power to change the way clothes are made. Learn more at patagonia.com.au. Hi, hi. This is the Dumbo Feather Podcast, where we invite extraordinary people to chat with us about the change they're affecting in their lives and the world around them. On this episode, we hear from one of the seminal writers in tree communication. Peter Woolaban, whose book The Hidden Life of Trees revolutionised our understanding of how trees nurture and talk to each other. The international bestseller draws on groundbreaking scientific discoveries to reveal the ways in which trees are like human families and communities, supporting the young ones as they grow, sharing nutrients to those who are sick or struggling, even warning each other of impending danger. The book was recently made into a documentary film, screened here in Australia by our friends at Transitions Film Festival. As part of that screening, Peter was interviewed by another friend of ours, Sarah Wilson, whose recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life, is among many things an ode to hiking and being in forests. Here is an edit of the conversation between Sarah and Peter. I've been asked to quickly introduce myself because some of you might not know who I am. And Peter, over in Germany, you might be wondering who I am as well. My name is Sarah Wilson. I'm a journalist, an activist and an author. I was a news journalist for 15 years. I was then the editor of Cosmopolitan at the age of 29. I hosted MasterChef Australia and I started a a movement called I Quit Sugar. And I know the books exist in Germany and 52 countries around the world. I've now turned my attention to essentially writing books that are about philosophy and how we can change the world. It's a book about anxiety and it was a New York Times bestseller and recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life, wonderfully sees me hike around the world through forests <laughs> to, to find a path through this fragmented world that we're living in today. So it is actually with incredible pleasure that I introduce the star of the film, The Hidden Life of Trees, Peter Woolliben. And I hope I've pronounced that somewhat accurately, Peter. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Usually with somebody of your calibre, I have to do some lengthy introduction, but hopefully everybody's just watched the film and hopefully also read your book as I have. Thank you so much for joining us in this discussion. I am going to lead with all of the questions. Generally on these things, we, we try to hand it over to an audience, but given we are in a virtual world, I'll have to speak on behalf, hopefully, of other people who've watched the film. Now, your book was an incredible success, a bestseller around the world. What made you do this film and what do you think it can achieve that perhaps your book can't? First, I never planned to make a film. Uh, I was asked by the movie company and then I thought, okay, hmm, sounds nice. I'm always curious, so let's do it. I didn't know that I would take part in the film. So I was just curious how this book could be a documentary. But afterwards, I realized, okay, I should take a certain part in the film. 
And then it turns out that was a great chance to do more for the protection of forests. For example, we visited the Quaker First Nation in British Columbia, and we made a trip to their homeland, and we had PR people from newspapers and television. So we get more attention for their problems. And afterwards, for the first time, they had a talk with the Minister of Forestry in British Columbia. And the latest news is that there is a good chance that their 500 square kilometer homeland could be protected from clear cutting. That was just by making the documentary. So we visit also the oldest tree, which I would never have traveled to, or the Bielowija primeval forest in eastern Poland. And we supported the local NGOs in protecting this forest. So the documentary turned out to be a great chance for me to do more for forests. So an activist tool. It's wonderful. I love that. Now, there's a bit of a pinicky question I've got. At the beginning of the film, there was a bit where I think a journalist was interviewing you and they said, what can we learn from trees? And I think you say, we can learn to feel less guilty and then the camera cuts to somewhere else. And I didn't actually get a feel for what that actually meant. Could you explain it to us? I don't know exactly what the discussion was at that point of the film, but I think we don't have to feel uh, responsible for everything because we think nowadays we have to manage nature to get a better nature. And the best conclusion of the film is let nature do the job. As long as you don't disturb nature, it's still very strong. Forests will recover. Um, I saw it in the last dry hot summer here in Germany. We have a tennis court here, uh, which is in, in the hot sun. It's the worst place for young trees. And after three years, because this tennis court is not not longer in use anymore, after three years, there's a young forest. So that's a very good thing from nature, uh, which says, hey, let the job done by nature, and then all is good. We just have to relax. We have to lay back and watch uh, how nature will do the job, how strong nature still is, as long as we don't disturb it. The spiritualists talked that quite often, and I found it very interesting during COVID. We saw these scenes of roads with trees growing up out of them, you know, roads that hadn't been used for several months. It is quite incredible how nature knows what she's doing. That explains it. Thank you. And I think there is a lot to be learned from that, trusting the natural logic and order and forward motion of nature. It's got itself sorted <laughs> far better than the human brain. Now. We've been told throughout history that trees compete, that they're competitive, a bit like the Darwinian theory of human nature. But actually you point out to us, and this is what people find so refreshing, is that trees cooperate and they actually look after each other and that's their modus operandi in many ways. It reminds me of a book that I've read recently and I've interviewed the author, Rutger Bregman, the Dutch writer, and he writes a very similar thing, that humans are actually kinder and more cooperative than we often talk about it. And I'm just wondering if this is a perspective that we can learn from in 2021 with all the stuff that we're facing, that cooperation is actually inherent in us and in trees. What can the trees teach us about this? Exactly this, that nature is uh, cooperation and not competition. In single cases, for example, when a wolf catches a deer and kills it, that's fight, of course. But from the perspective of the wolf, that's just food. Between different species, there is no competition. There's no species which like to extinct another species. So it's more about cooperation. And the theory that trees compete comes from forest industry. 
because forest industry thins forests and says, okay, we create more space for single trees so they can better grow. And so we think foresters are something like tree keepers. But in reality, trees are very interested in uh, creating a big social community because recent research from Germany, they can cool down in comparison to farmland around about 10 degrees Celsius in summertime. So the high summer temperatures are caused by a change of land use. The tree community likes it cool, likes it humid. Trees, as a big forest, can create their own rain. There's strong research in Germany by different universities, and they found out that the biggest problems in climate change is not the temperature in general, but the local temperatures done by land use change. And therefore, we can learn that cooperation is a, a principle of nature. That's nothing that humans have um, um, invented. So it's a nature principle. And I'm often criticized that my theories are entomomorphized. Trees are here since more than 300 million years. So that's a principle that we got from trees. <laughs> not, not vice versa. But not the other way. We've been tr we've been tree morphized <laughs> inherently. Yes, that's absolutely right. And it's actually quite a revelation when people reflect on that. And I write about this, and uh, I'm not the first to write about it. But a lot of the joy that we get from being in nature comes from a congruence, a reminder of the same patternings, even the fractals that occur in our eyes recognize the fractals that occur in nature and it creates this attunement and a reminder of the natural order of things and that can feel very safe and complete. But we'll get to a bit of that in a moment. I wanted to touch on some of that other anthropomorphizing of trees but really around the moral lessons because I think that's what we respond to in your book so, so strongly. The world has very much responded to that and a few of them that the film picks up on and, and so too in the book is that the more affectionate trees, and that's the language that you use, tend to survive rather than the more competitive. And I find that a beautiful word, the more affectionate trees. And then the forests understand the value of looking after the old and the weak, that there's value in that, incredible value. And these, are, of course, can be parlayed onto the human experience, especially at the moment when if forests have been suffering from bad forestry management that's all about competition, we as humans have been suffering from capitalism, which is all about competing units, you know, which is unnatural for us. What, in your experience of many years now of doing Q&As and speaking to the public, what's probably the moral lesson that resonates most with people at the moment that they can take from trees? I think that's really the thing with competition. That is a nature principle that it's all about cooperation. And when we think about modern economic theories, the London School, for example, their newest theory is also that it's even better for economic things, that it's better to cooperate than to compete. We see that in big companies, but it's meant in another way, that it's better to give when you're rich, better to give to stabilize uh, societies so all people get more wealthy afterwards, and not just in money, but also in health and other things. And we see it now in the COVID-19 pandemic things, when we don't get vaccine, for example, to poorer countries, we won't overcome this. So that's a good example that we should share. And not think just in ourselves. You see in the richer countries that they buy, for example, Germany, I think, bought three or four times more 
vaccines than necessary, just to have in every case enough. In other countries like South Africa, they don't have that. And we see these mutations, which are coming back to Germany now. So we are all sitting in the same boat. And to be more social, to be more cooperative, is also a very nice way of egoism. And it speaks to the example of trees do see value in looking after the elderly, because it's the elderly that hold the canopy and keep the structure in place and protect the young while they grow. And the memory. And that's also recent research that very old trees, research done on 1,000-year-old oak trees in Germany, it looks like that they remember their former Spanish origin after the Ice Age. So they develop in the moment when, when it's getting very hot and dry, different leaf types, which remember leaf types from Spanish mountains. So the scientists wonder why this old oaks do this, but it's an adaption on climate change because they were used in former times to hotter and drier climate. And they give this through epigenetic processes to their seedlings. And that's the value also of old people. I appreciate all old people, but the value for a society is that they have emotional things in mind which a computer can create. For example, 10,000 years ago, when old people, they saw a lion, and young people have never seen a lion, then old people would have screamed and the blood pressure arises and uh, all people are instantly ready to flee. And when you just read about lions, then it takes time to understand. And meanwhile, you're eaten by the <coughs> lions. Old people remember wartime and they say, hey, we have to be strong together. We won't have that back and we won't have to have a corona crisis, which is something like war against nature. And the nature turns out to be stronger. So it's all about remembrance in an emotional way. And old people are very good in giving advice to young people exactly in this way. And no computer, no Wikipedia or whatever can be better than old people. You mentioned the climate crisis there and some lessons that parlay onto that. And COVID obviously is another one. But have you found that the climate crisis has created even a fresher perspective on things, brought even more interest to the theories that you talk about? Has it shifted how you do things? And, of course, the film comes out right now, several years after your book has come out. Has the climate crisis made your theories even more relevant? I would say so because trees are the solution. Trees are the strongest solution and strongest answer that we have to climate change. For example, Elon Musk awarded a prize for the best technique to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that is very risky. Every technology is risky, but we have a very good technology, and that is trees. They store it in a very safe way, and they cool down the climate by sweating out water, and they create rain. They are much better than every machine in the future can be. So trees are a very strong answer. I've kept that for a new book. The removing of forest for agriculture, especially for animal food, is the biggest driver for climate change. It's even a bigger driver than coal. So the removal of forest for animal keeping is the biggest problem. And soon as we reduce meat consumption and get more forest back, we can turn this. So that is the good news. And for getting forest back under European conditions, North American conditions, it should be in Australia the same. We have to do nothing. We just have to let the trees do their job. When you are in a desert-like landscape where there has been a forest and there's no tree anymore, there you can plant trees. But beside that, you just have trees do their job with the aid of birds and other 
natural processes, then we will get big forest back and there could be a competition which country gets the coolest climate. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've got to take our filthy mitts off life and let it do its thing. It reminds me actually last week when I heard that Elon Musk news, I put up a meme on my Instagram and it showed the announcement he posted on Twitter and somebody had written it as a reply, good luck to whoever invents forests, you know. <laughs> and it's like, you know, there's some incredible irony there. As you'd be very aware, the bushfires here in Australia this time last year did incredible damage to our forests. We lost over 1 billion animals and, of course, more than 20% of our forests in Australia were destroyed by fire. Have you got any understanding of what kind of impact that is going to have on us but also the world? Have you followed the bushfires and their impact on forests? Yeah, that made me really sad to see this. And there was also big news in Germany over several weeks and months. Don't just feel sorry for the animals and the people who lost their home, but also for all people in the world, because the Australian forests are also important for us in Germany and vice versa. So it's always a great damage for the global nature to have this in Australia a month later in California and Oregon and the United States. And we have that in Siberia years earlier and afterwards. Also, we have the wildfires even in Germany. The Arctic yeah. Circle as well have had wildfires, which is incredible. Yeah, and in most cases, it's human-made. It's not by lizards, it's human-made by fires, it's human-made by forest tree, which then forests and leaves much dead branches. That's not typical for virgin forest. You have thick stems laying on the ground, which are like sponge, full of water. Forests like this don't burn easily. There may be a ground fire, but not fire which destroys whole trees. That's not typical for any fire ecosystem on the world. So I think all those fires, it was warning signal and perhaps a signal to awake, to protect more forest and to stop the destruction of forest, not just by forestry, but also by the global warming. You referred to the fact that trees experience pain. And once you know this, then the idea of chopping them down without a conscience is unbearable. In terms of understanding what has happened to our community of trees here in Australia with so much destroyed, I think it'd be really helpful to hear about how do you see pain in trees play out? Because when we see an animal go through pain, it can often switch people to a vegetarian diet or to more mindful meat consumption. Could you talk us through how trees experience pain and perhaps it'll get us a little bit more mobilised around this issue? So we don't know so far if a tree feels pain like we do. I don't know also if you feel pain like I do. So that's also something special. But to come back to the research, how can we know that trees feel pain in general? Pain could be just a signal. For example, a bark beetle stitches in the, in the bark and then you can measure an electrical signal, you can measure a defending re reaction, but that doesn't have to mean that the tree really feels pain. But plants in general produce pain-suppressing substances. Why do we produce pain-suppressing substances? Because pain is a very important signal that our body is getting damaged, so we have to react. But in certain situations, our brains say, no, I don't need the signal now. Why? Because we have to stay conscious. In stressy situations, for example, when you have an accident. And plants do exactly the same. In certain situations, they 
produce pain-suppressing substances. And that is a very strong hint that plants in general are conscious. And when you're conscious, then you feel pain. You recognize pain. It's not just a reflex. That is nothing esoteric. That's strong research from the nearby University of Bonn. They found out that there are even the same signal molecules that are responsible for the transportation of signals in our brain in their root tips, for example. So there's a strong evidence that plants and trees can really feel pain. I don't know if that's good news because we both are writing books, therefore you need paper and therefore you have to kill trees. But there's a way to do it and that is to do it mindfully and to work with nature and not to abuse trees and waste. And I think that's the lesson there. A lot of what you're talking about, those molecules, I know that people who have studied forest bathing refer to these molecules and that they can actually have a wonderful effect on our own stress and anxiety in South Korea, for instance, sending kids out into forests, particularly bullies and and kids with behavioural issues, is part of the health policies over there as well as in Japan. Forest fading, I know, has a bit of a spiritual element to it as well. Would you say that you have a spiritual connection to trees? And also, do you feel that one of the solutions that we can apply right now for people who are concerned about all of this is forest fading a way to go about it? To your first question, I would say I'm not very spiritual. I would love to be that way because I think it can be very relaxing. But I was educated in a very scientific way and all things have to be proven in a conventional way. So that's the reason why I always refer to scientific studies, but just telling them in a more emotional way. But I love people who hug trees, for example, because everyone who hugs trees don't carry a chainsaw. <laughs> I like that. But I think that chemical communication of trees can really help us because, for example, you can measure your blood pressure when you're in the forest and blood pressure sinks. And we, we've done that and it worked. It turns out that it worked. For example, first we measure the blood pressure in a big city and then we drove out in the forest and then blood pressure sinks. There is scientific research on that. We have in Germany, for example, one university in Munich, which educate people to become a trainee in such things because we see that we have a strong impact on health from being in a forest. So that's a good way to connect with forests to see how valuable forests are beside the fact that we can harvest timber. Yes, absolutely. It's a very big distraction, this notion of saving the planet. This is what the environmental movement has been saying for many years. Really, the message is the planet will survive. It's humanity that is at risk. And this is the big switch, I feel, that we all need to make. And wonderfully, nature is there to hold us. I think the biggest salve is to go out into nature, be in nature, and to be reminded of how much we love it. And we as humans tend to save and fight for what we love. That's my solution to things. But in the trailer for the film, you ran the line, forests will return. It would just be nice if we were still around. Was that your choice of words to use on the trailer? Yeah, that's the conclusion of the film. And that's why we also can be very relaxed. We don't have to be concerned about nature. We have to be concerned about certain species, of course, which will get extinct. We don't have to be concerned about nature in general. We have to be concerned about ourselves. We are again in the question of how we cooperate and how we care for each other. Nature is a mirror of how we treat ourselves. 
And I think the moment we say, ooh, no, we don't want to take care of ourselves in that way, how we treat yeah, pigs and animal keeping or how we treat the Great Barrier Reef, for example, or other precious nature. We should treat it like ourselves and then we are all happy. I think it's a beautiful note to finish it on. And I think the solution is fast simpler if you just go and follow nature. Let nature be your guide. Thank you so much, Peter. That was a wonderful discussion. Thank you to Transitions Film Festival and Peter and Sarah for sharing this conversation with us. Dumbo Feather is produced on the lands of the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nations and the Arakwa people of the Bunjalong Nations. I acknowledge traditional owners of these lands and elders, past and present. We currently have a magazine out that's all about truth and critical thinking. It features a piece by Sarah Wilson, which you can purchase over at our website, dumbofeather.com. Thanks for your company. Bye for now.